Let's turn to uh, Psalm 85, which I'll read in a moment. Um, just a couple of other things. One is uh, this evening, last Sunday evening, we looked at the question of gender in terms of culture and society. God made humanity male and female. This evening, I hope to be looking at that in terms of uh, gender and the church. Um, and can I also say to the elders who are going to be serving communion, um, you're going to have to work this one out, but there isn't enough room, so we're going to have to serve upstairs as well. So be prepared for that. Uh, we may need some extra bread as well. There's a, a lot of people here. So um, just to give you time to prepare uh, for that. We were going to ask those of you upstairs to come down, but you'd have to sit on people's knees. So we're not that close fellowship. Um, I want to also uh, pray just before we open God's word, and some of you will know Sarah Carr. Uh, I'm going to pray for her in particular. She had a baby about a month ago, and uh, she's in um, HTU and in, in not in a, a great condition. The babies. Yeah, the babies. Sorry, the babies in HTU um, and not in a great condition. So let's just pray for Sarah and her baby. Lord, we thank you for your goodness to us in so many ways, and we thank you for the children, and we pray especially for those who are ill. We pray for uh, Sarah Carr's baby. We pray for her, for her husband, for the family, and especially we pray for that wee child, and we ask, Lord, that you would have mercy and grant life. Uh, we pray that you would have mercy upon us and grant us life as we look at your word just now. May it be that we hear it as a word from you to us and be with us as we sit at your table as well. In your name, amen. Let's turn to Psalm 85. And uh, we're going through the Psalms when we go at communion. And I want to begin by just reading the first few verses. You, Lord, showed favor to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people and covered all their sins. You set aside all your wrath and turned from your fierce anger. How did you come to church this morning? I, obviously, I don't mean by what method of transport you came. I mean, what state were you in when you came? Some of you, I suspect, could hardly be bothered coming. Maybe there are people who are not here because when they got out of bed, they just thought, I can't, I can't. Um, some came carelessly and in many different ways. Maybe as you go out the door and you get the familiar greeting, how are you? The answer, of course, you know, is fine. And fine stands for frustrated, insecure, neurotic, and exhausted. Um, that's where many of us are at. Some of you have come here weary. Well, what we're looking at this morning brings refreshment. God's word brings refreshment. Some of you have come here lonely, desperately lonely. Here is love, vast as the ocean. Some have come ashamed. There is forgiveness. Some have come discouraged and depressed. Here in God's word is encouragement and joy. And some have come acutely aware of how far God feels from us. You are asking what on earth is going on. And this is heaven's answer. This whole psalm is, as one man describes, it's a prophetic meditation on the role of revival and renewal. And we, we do long to be 
revived. You know the advert for the, the shower gel, the, you get it and you know, you go into the shower and you're a bit minging, that's why you're going into the shower, but you're also feeling a bit down and a bit flat and a bit weary and you go in and this wonderful shower gel, it just zings and you come out bouncing, revived, renewed, refreshed. Well, that's a lie, uh, but, but this isn't. Um, this is what, what is revival, what is renewal? It's a collective thing, it's an individual thing. And this is a, a prayer, really, for revival, which I, I think we need individually. I need it. You need it. The church needs it. The whole church in Scotland and beyond needs it. So these first three verses come under each uh, title, just one word, comes under the title, really, Remember. And it's very interesting what he says, because he doesn't say Remember the past glories. Um, we were listening to a program on Radio 4 yesterday about nostalgia and how you go in nostalgia. Oh, I remember in the good old days when you could leave your door open. Yeah, even infantry. Or <laughs> you could leave your door open and any, people would walk in and out and everyone cared. For, I remember those days well. Well, it's slightly exaggerated, I suspect, for many people. And people, I remember the days in the church when the churches were full. I remember when this and I remember that. But that's not the kind of remembrance that's been spoken of here. It's not remembering the past glories that we had. It's remembering God's past mercies. And it's shown in three ways. You, Lord, showed favor to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people and covered all their sins. You set aside all your wrath and turned from your fierce anger. God's people at this point are in a mess and they're being asked to remember. Remember when you knew God had forgiven you. Remember when you experience God's mercy. This is not just something that's theoretical. It's not just something that uh, is in, in the Bible, but you ex experienced it. And the, the two things they're asked to remember are genuine repentance and a change in God's attitude to them. It talks about God's wrath being turned aside because we, we don't like this. We work on the assumption that God must love us because we're basically lovable or God must love us because that's what he does. But what we forget is that God is just and God is fair and that a God who could look upon the shooting of 11 worshippers in a Jewish synagogue in the United States and say, yeah, it doesn't matter. I just love the person who did that anyway. That would be wrong. We know that that's wrong. A God who overlooked our sin and said, ah, forget it, it doesn't matter. A God who allowed us to mock him and to abuse him and to reject his word and say, well, never mind, I'll just give them whatever they want anyway. That would not be a just and right and holy God. We were singing, only a holy God. And the trouble in the church is lots of people want an unholy God. A God who's just going to give in to whatever we wish and whatever we want. But our God is a holy God. And when we perceive the holiness of God, Instead of us standing up and saying, well, God, you've got to do this, or God, you've got to accept me, or God, why is this happening to me? 
we fall on our knees and we, we say, God, how can we even be in your presence? And that's where the gospel comes in. 1 John 1, 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. By the way, do you hear those words as a Christian? If you claim you have not sinned, you're lying. You're lying. No matter what you say, you're lying. That's what the word of God says. His word is not in you. My dear children, he says, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He doesn't say, if anyone does sin, then we've got this block of good works that we've done and we just chip away at that. He says, no, we have an advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. So when we sit at the Lord's table, we're remembering that there's someone who forgives us our sins because the problem, the reason we are feeling so dead, the reason we need revived, the reason we need restored is because it's because of sin and it's because of our sin as much as anybody else's. Calvin says this, our faith would immediately succumb under adversity and sorrow. Uh, sorry, our faith would immediately succumb under adversity and sorrow would choke our hearts were we not taught to believe from the experience of the past that he is inclined compassionately to hear the prayers of his servants. So the psalmist looks back and he remembers and he remembers God was gracious in the past. God forgave in the past. And so he goes on to say this, restore us again, God our Father. Put away your displeasure towards us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger through all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your unfailing love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. We remember and we pray because the present situation is not good. Now, you know this. You know this in your own life. You know it in your own experience. And I will pretty well guarantee that most of us here feel this today. If we're being really honest, God seems to have turned away his face. God's ears are closed to our prayers. God's mouth is silent. God does not speak. His arm does not save. That's what we feel. That is our experience. But we cannot go by our experience because our experience is wrong. And that's why the psalmist prays. He, he, he's got this disconnect between what he believes and what's happening. And he can't work out how this is the case. And so he remembers the past and then he prays. And what does he pray for? He prays for restoration, for the Lord to turn away his displeasure, for God to be turned towards us. We forget to plead, says Calvin, what should chiefly engage our thoughts, that he would deliver us from guilt and condemnation. And we forget this because we're reluctant to descend into our own hearts and to examine ourselves. See, I have lots of things I want to plead for. I have lots of personal circumstances. I have lots of injustices that I see. I have lots of collective and wider circumstances. And the psalmist is reminding us that my greatest need is to plead to God for forgiveness, to, to deliver me from guilt and condemnation. 
to be restored to God. That's again, by the way, what the communion does. It's a constant reminder that we are being restored to God. I don't know how many times people have stood up in a pulpit and preached or have led a Bible study or have spoken to someone or have sang songs of praise whilst in their heart there was a bitterness and an anger and a greed and a lust and, they, and then we wonder why God is not close to us. We pray for restoration. We pray for revival. Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? So often, we're kind of very sleepy. We're, we're kind of, in, in a faint, we're kind of comatosed as a church and as individuals. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of fainting, um, some of us have had that a few times. I've fainted so many times in this church, they're going to put a bench with a plaque on it outside just for me to sit so I can faint decently and in order. Um, I say to my charismatic friends, I've been slain in the spirit many times. Uh, but when you faint, it's really, really weird because you kind of, you feel yourself going and then the next thing, you're kind of looking and there's people around you looking really anxious and you're looking up and you're going, and, and then you kind of a wee bit embarrassed and you try and get up and you collapse, you know, and all the colors gone from you and people are looking and then after a while they say, oh, he's beginning to revive, beginning to get a bit of an appetite, beginning to drink and so on. And I think a lot of us spiritually are like we're in a faint. It's maybe not been so dramatic, but it's just a gradual thing or we're asleep and the Lord has to come and revive us and, and wake us up and revive us so that it leads to rejoicing that we may rejoice in you. Where's the joy gone? We need revived. And renewal for God's love and salvation to be shown to us. We long for God's mercy. We long for his love and salvation to be shown. Because we know it's there, but we don't really seem to be experiencing it. Show us your unfailing love, Lord, and grant us your salvation. We long for God's mercy. We pray for the Lord to come to us in restoration. So we remember, we pray, then what? We listen. I will listen to what God the Lord says. He promises peace to his people, his faithful servants, but let them not turn to folly. Surely his salvation is near those who fear him, that his glory may dwell in our land. I'll resolve to listen. It's right to pray, and it's surely right to tell God, this is what I feel, this is my pain, this is my hurt. And then what God does, and I see it very much as the gentle whisper. It's, it's the arm around and saying, now, I hear you, now listen, 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 listen. We're too busy talking, we don't listen to what God says. We must wait upon God's word. And we are to be doers as well as hearers of the word. You see what the word is? I will listen to what the Lord says. He promises peace to his people. God promises peace to his people. One thing you need to know about God is he can never lie. So, okay, he promises peace. How does that peace come? What is involved in that peace? He promises healing and wholeness. And when God speaks, God creates. That's why listening to God's word is so important because it does bring peace, real peace 
and deep peace. You know, we use a lot of words and our politicians use a lot of words. And I, I was reading this week of a political rally where a political leader was talking about, we need to give unconditional love and let's base our policy on unconditional love. But what does that mean? And how does a politician do that? How, how does anyone do that? How do any of us do that? We, we can have the words and we can talk and we can shout love is love and love, love, love all that we want. But we can't create it. But God is love. And when God speaks, things come to pass. And so he tells his people, they have to be faithful. He promises peace to his people, his faithful servants. We are not to turn to folly. Because sometimes when we're down, sometimes when we're discouraged, sometimes when we're beat up, sometimes when we're confused, sometimes when we're really hurting, you know what our temptation is? Our temptation is to turn to folly. Our temptation is to turn to the bottle. Our temptation is to look in on ourselves. Our temptation is to get angry with other people. Our temptation is to, to seek an other way of getting what we want. But God says, that's folly. Don't, don't go there. That's folly. Instead, he gives a very interesting thing. He says, my salvation is near those who fear him. 1 Peter 1.17, since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your life, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. It's strange that the Bible's asking us to live in fear because that just seems so counterintuitive and wrong. And it is wrong if it's fear of ourselves, fear of others, fear of the devil. It's not wrong if it is the right fear of God, which is an awe and an irreverence, which is recognizing to us that things are really, really screwed up and messed up and that we are as well, but our God is the holy God and he is the good God and he will work all things, as we've been seeing in Romans 8. He will work all things for the good of those who love him. Live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. Some of us are too comfortable, too at home in this world. And so when our comforts are shaken up, we become very discomforted, if you like, very insecure, very unsure. But to live in the fear of God is not to live with a cowardly, craven fear, but with a certainty and an assurance that a great and holy God, who is also love, will care for and provide for his people. And again, the communion reminds us of how that happens. Then the last verses of the psalm. Love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs forth from the earth and righteousness looks down from heaven. The Lord will indeed give what is good and our land will yield its harvest. Righteousness goes before him and prepares the way for his steps. Now, this is a beautiful picture that's describing harmony. And we need harmony because what's wrong? What's wrong in your life? What's wrong in my life? 
there is a disconnect between heaven and earth. We listen to the word of God, and if we're hearing rightly, it's wonderful, it's fantastic, it's brilliant, and the themes of which it speaks is so great. But, you know, we walk out of here on Sunday morning, we walk out of here on a Sunday evening, and before Monday morning even comes, there's a disconnect between what we've heard in church and, and what's going on in our lives, what's going on at work, what's going on in our homes, what's going on in our society and in our culture, what's going on with our friends. And it's not that the Word of God is not connecting and telling us, because the Word of God is telling us, but it's just, it seems there's this disharmony, and there is. But here's this wonderful promise. It's a promise of harmony. It's a promise of love and faithfulness meeting together. It's a promise of righteousness and peace in perfect balance. It's a promise that is fulfilled as the result of the atonement of the cross of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 5.8, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. See, you, you feel like darkness, and sometimes I feel like darkness, and sometimes we feel like we live in the darkness. I mean, I love this weather today. It's absolutely great. My least favorite weather of any kind is a gray, dreek, Glasgow day. No, we, we do get them in, in Dundee as well. You just get up and you know, the, the, the clocks have changed and you're going to get up in the dark, some of you, to go to work in the dark and you come home in the dark and then you, you, you can have these glorious November sunrises and sunsets over the Tay and that really, really helps. But sometimes you don't. Sometimes it's just gloomy and moody and depressing. And that's what you feel. That's, what, that's how you feel like. And what Paul is telling us in Ephesians, he's saying, no, 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 no. You were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. And that's what God's word does. That's what Jesus does. There's a great restoration promised, Isaiah 65, 17. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. See, there's like... The Christian life... And teaching in the church is often it's full of reaction and then overreaction against that reaction. So there's a kind of teaching that says, well, as a Christian, you should be bouncy and joyful and happy all the time. And you should be prosperous and wealthy and healthy all the time. And we know that that's not true. But there's a reaction against that which says, well, do you know this? If things are going well, watch out, they're going to go bad. Or, or we, we can't be too joyful. I really enjoyed that, but there must be something bad coming around the corner. And I think that's just as bad as thinking things are always going to be great. I think what we've got is here is a wonderful promise that God delights to bring his people joy and he delights to prosper his people. And if he permits things to happen to us which do not cause us joy and which seem to bring not prosperity but, but harm and hurt and, and disaster, then we weep and we mourn and we suffer and we struggle. But underneath it all, we should have this assurance and this faith 
that God is going to bring good even out of evil. The land will yield its harvest and God will come. That's what verse 13 says. Look, righteousness goes before him and prepares the way for his steps. He's basically saying our God is coming. It's the Old Testament equivalent of Revelation 22.20. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I'm coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. When it comes to communion, we expect the presence of Christ in the communion. We expect the harmony. There's to be a harmony in the body of Christ. And I'll, I'll say something about that just before we take the communion. But that comes as a result of the cross. Well, let me ask you just very simply, do you remember God's past mercies? Do you remember the good things that have happened in your life? Do you remember the experiences that you've had that have been positive, where there was a, 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 an awareness of God's forgiveness, there was an awareness of answered prayer? And right now, those things are gone. They are in the past. Well, remember them. If you've never experienced them, you do need to come to experience them. You need to come to know Christ. All of us need righteousness and restoration and revival and renewal and repentance. But remember them. Pray that God would restore and revive and renew. And even pray as, as, as you take communion. Listen to what God is saying in his word. The devil will come with 101 other suggestions. Your heart will condemn you. Other people will condemn you. You will be confused and, and, and messed up. The only thing that's absolutely clear is the word of God. I listened to someone. Someone sent me a video um, trying to say, well, this will destroy your Christianity, David. And it was a video of lots of people's religious experiences. Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and Muslims and various cults and Catholics and, and uh, other Christian groups. And this guy thought it was a knockdown killer argument. Because everyone was talking about the wonderful experiences they had. And he said, that's what you base your Christianity on. And, and I wrote back to him and said, you got this one so wrong. Because my experiences are my experiences and that how I, I, I don't believe you can divorce your experiences from what you believe. However, I want to tell you this, I believe in Jesus not because of my experiences, but I believe in Jesus because of his word. There's enormous danger in, lying in your experience, relying on your experiences. If you feel that God is far from you, if you feel that God is unjust, if you feel that God is wrong you, it doesn't mean that what you feel is true. You go to the word of God for what is true. And... It's amazing how the feelings change. How often do I hear people say, David, I believe, I believe in Jesus and I believe what the Bible says about Jesus and I've committed my life to follow Jesus. I don't feel anything. Well, that's sad, that's, that's hard, but it doesn't mean you're not a Christian. On the other hand, you could say, I feel, I feel the presence of God. I feel the love of Jesus. And that may well be true and it may well be false. You can't rely on it, but you can rely on Jesus and you can rely on his word. You can rely on what he's done. That's why we remember in the communion, we remember what he has done. So let's remember, pray, listen, and let's expect God to work and God to bring harmony and God to renew and God to revive. 
Do you know what I think we do? It's a very clever psychological trick that we do. And when I say we, I, I guess I'm talking about Scottish Christians. Uh, those of you who are not Scottish, maybe you're not exempt from this. And some of you are Scottish and you won't recognise this. But I think what we do, it's quite a clever trick. It's a bit like supporting Scotland, the football team. You just go, they're not going to win. They're not going to win. They're not going to win. And when they don't win, you're ready for it. You think you are. The worst thing in supporting Scotland is when you get some hope and you think, they could win. They might win. They're going to win. And then it's always the hope that kills you, not the, not the despair. And I think we do that a little bit in terms of Christianity. Do you know this? I know God blesses. I know God is good. I know that in, he does it in China. I know he did it in the first century. I know he did it in the Reformation. I'm not expecting it today. I'm not expecting it in my church. I'm not expecting it in my life. And you go home and you say, well, I told you so. And so you're almost satisfied at being miserable. I think that's fundamentally wrong. I think we as Christians should expect God to bless. And when we are not blessed, we should say, Lord, why? What's wrong? What's happening? We should cry out because our God is a God who blesses. And we may need to see a wider picture and a bigger picture and a deeper picture. And I think one of the reasons we do that psychologically is because it hurts so much to expect something and not to get it. You know, it hurts so much to think I'm going to get this and then you get slapped in the teeth. It really, it, it just, and so we kind of steal ourselves and say it's not going to happen, it's not going to happen. For me, I think we should say, Lord, you are good and you are the giver of all things good and we expect your blessing. We can't tell you what it's to be and we're not going to judge you by the difficult and sad things that happen to us but we come to you seeking forgiveness we come to you expecting harmony between heaven and earth we come to you expecting healing of our broken relationships our broken bodies our broken churches and our broken society you are God who's faithful you have been faithful in the past and you will be faithful in the future. Amen.